Afternoon, everybody. Welcome back uh, to another Banner Lecture. Uh, I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions. Great to see you all. And hello to all of our virtual viewers on Facebook and YouTube. Um, just a couple of program notes before we we bring David on. Um, uh, just a, a okay. How's that? Better? Good. I've been told not to move the microphone. I got my hand slapped for that once before. Um, just a couple of program notes before we get started. Um, uh, when we do the Q&A, because we are recording, um, please wait until one of our staff come with a wireless mic so that you can ask your questions so it can be recorded. Um, we would appreciate that very much. A uh, reminder that our galleries are open. Uh, so if you haven't had a chance to see the Violence of Hope exhibit, uh, please take a moment to do that. Um, and also David will be signing books uh, after his talk uh, right outside in the lobby. Um, a couple of program notes, as I mentioned before, uh, our member Mondays at Virginia House are back up and running. Uh, so our next one is on uh, September 20th. It's coming up right next week at 530. Uh, that's where you can bring your own picnic or enjoy a curated uh, refreshments from uh, some of our local merchants. Our movie myth busting program is uh, continuing. Uh, this is a virtual program where you get to see a film on your own time and then join up in a Zoom call uh, with our education staff and or a guest uh, to discuss what's true and what's not in the film. Uh, our next program will be on October 12th. Uh, that's at 7 p.m. where you can join VMHC, the Virginia Holocaust Museum, and the Black History Museum and Cultural Center of Virginia for a discussion about Defiance, a Holocaust film with connections to our own Violence of Hope exhibits. Also related to Violence of Hope uh, will be our next Curator Conversations program. Uh, that will be uh, on October 18th at 10 a.m. Um, Andy Talkov, our Senior Director for Curatorial Affairs, will be talking about how that exhibit came together um, and I believe that will be in the building. I believe that will be a, a tour in the building uh, of the exhibit. Uh, and then finally, our uh, next banner lecture uh, is really a special one. Uh, that's on Wednesday, October 7th at noon. Most of you probably know that this year is the 50th anniversary uh, commemorating uh, the 1971 ratification of our Virginia Constitution, our current Constitution. And we will be pleased uh, to have uh, A.E. Dick Howard, uh, Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia here, uh, to talk about the evolution of Virginia's constitutions, all seven of them. Um, some of you, uh, I hope, will know that uh, Professor Howard was on the committee uh, that helped ratify the 1971 Constitution, uh, so he had uh, a front row seat uh, in that process. Uh, and. Uh, he is truly an exemplary scholar on Virginia constitutional history, so I hope you all have a chance to attend that lecture. But today we uh, hear about a very important Virginia figure that we all know and love, and that's George Washington. George Washington's rise constitutes one of the great self-reinventions in history. In his mid-20s, Washington had tarnished his military career in the French and Indian War through poor judgment and brash behavior. But by his mid forties, he had evolved in a, into a bona fide leader chosen to command the fledgling Continental Army. By his mid fifties, he was unanimously elected the nation's first president. So how did Washington with a meager education and little inherited wealth grow from his failures to become the central founder of the United States? We're very pleased today to have with us Dave Stewart. Uh, David turned to writing after a career of practicing law in Washington, D.C. He is an award-winning and best-selling author of several books on American history, including Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America, American Emperor, Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America, 
the summer of 1787, the men who invented the Constitution, and the subject of his talk today, his most recent book, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. Please give a warm VMHC welcome to David Stewart. Thank you very much, Adam, for that generous introduction. And thank you all. I'm delighted everybody online is watching, but I'm particularly grateful for you folks who are here. Um, this book came out in February, and I have talked to my webcam far too much. And it's a delight to be out with real people um, and uh, talking to actual folks. Uh, huh. Well, there. Oh, here it is. Okay. I have my tool. Um, this book um, sort of came, uh, grew out of a couple of realizations. One was, as you heard from Adam, uh, I uh, have written several books on the founding era. And whenever I went out and talked about them, people would always or often asked, so who is the most important person? And I would always end up saying George Washington. And after having done that a, a dozen or two dozen times, it occurred to me that maybe I had been missing the point and that maybe I should pay some attention to Washington. Um, and then I was struck by an observation uh, that others have made that, of course, he won these four key elections in his life as commander in chief of the army, uh, as president of the Constitutional Convention, uh, and as president twice, our, our first president. Um, that's very impressive, of course, but he won them unanimously. And you just don't do that with box tops. Um, you didn't, it was hard to do in the 18th century. Nobody else did. Um, it's inconceivable today. Uh, so I wanted to study that um, because it seemed to me he was an extraordinarily successful politician, which is a way we don't think about him. Uh, we think about him as a planter, as a soldier, as a patriot, but not as a politician. Uh, and I wanted to dig at that. And it turned out he was a practicing politician a lot of his life, more than, than perhaps you think. Um, and it's an interesting story to me because it wasn't simply because he was tall and a general and rich. Um, he was tall um, and he did marry money, which was a smart thing to do, um, but he had limitations. Um, he was an undistinguished speaker. He had a weak voice. Um, he had, as Adam mentioned, a, a middling education at best, just a few years of formal instruction. He, he never spoke of it. Uh, he had a very small inheritance and a checkered early career. And something I think is important for us to keep in mind is he had really bad teeth. Um, I always like to start with this because um, this is the device. It's at Mount Vernon. Some of you have doubtless seen it there that he put in his mouth every morning for the last 10 years of his life. And just imagine how awful that was. And I couldn't help but wonder what he could actually eat, um, although I found no reference to that. Perhaps he could just soldier through and, and manage uh, meat, but it's a little hard to imagine. He had, at last few years of his life, he had no teeth left in his mouth, none of his own. Uh, so how did this fellow become the great hero of America's founding? And there is... I think it's an extraordinary tale of a man who was by no means a natural politician, but schooled himself, engaged in a campaign, a lifelong campaign of relentless self-improvement and became a master politician. And so I want you to think about him in ways you haven't. Um, so I, I want to start with a few images of him. You know, we're used to the image on the dollar bill where, you know, he's very severe looking, it, kind of looks like his teeth hurt. Um, this was a portrait painted in his last term in Congress uh, as president uh, by a Swedish painter, uh, Adolf Wertheimer, 
Um, and he sort of looks like a regular person, you know, sort of a, a nice fellow you might run into in the tavern. Um, not at all this imperious or uh, far-seeing visionary we're inclined to think uh, of him as. Um, this is a drawing that was done by Benjamin Latrobe in the last year of his life, when uh, of Washington's life, when he visited Mount Vernon. And this is more of a far-seeing look, a uh, visionary look. And I think it's important to understand that there were multiple sides to this person. He was not just one thing. Uh, and these are images I like because they're so different. Um, and then the last one um, is was created by a Photoshop wizard um, in trying to bring Washington to the current day. What would he look like now? Um, and he looks like someone who might be serving in the Virginia State Senate. Um, he's got his uh, lapel pin, and he, he looks like rather good company. Uh, and I think that is uh, an important way to sort of revisualize Washington. Um, now, in the second half of my book, I analyze how he applied his political skills to five great crises that faced the new nation and his contributions both to independence and to the founding of the new nation. And I'm going to put that aside. And what I want to talk about today is the earlier period that I think we know less about, certainly talk less about. And one, let me just start. He did not grow up at Mount Vernon. Um, he was born uh, at Pope's Creek in Westmoreland County, uh, close to the bay. Uh, this is the historic site they have down here, down there, and you can visit this. Um, I want to emphasize, though, that it's all incorrect. Um, these were built in 1932 at the time of the bicentennial of his birth, and they're in the wrong place. They've discovered, archaeologists discovered it. Uh, house was actually somewhere else, and it was considerably smaller. Uh, but at least you can go visit the spot. Uh, he only lived there until he was three, and his family then moved to what became known as Mount Vernon. It was then called Little Hunting Creeks, and he lived there for three years, ages three to six. There's not much evidence he had any real memories of it. Um, and his true boyhood home, and many of you may have been there, is was at Ferry Farm in Fredericksburg. It's right across the Rappahannock from downtown Fredericksburg. And this is also rebuilt. Um, the original house is long gone. This is on the right lo location. They have assured us of that. And the archeologists uh, affirm that it's correct in its dimensions. And it's useful to look at for a minute because it's a nicer house than many Virginians lived in. And 18th century when he was uh, a boy, but it's not Mount Vernon. This is not a gracious plantation home. This is just a house. And he lived there with four younger siblings and his mother. His father died when he was 11. So his father was around some of the time, although he was away uh, a good deal. He had business in England and also uh, in other parts of the colony. So uh, Washington's upbringing was modest. Uh, his father owned about 10,000 acres, which is a lot of land even then, but he was not really much of a farmer. He had an iron business that he poured his energy into and it never really took off. And then he died at a relatively uh, early age in his forties and George was left at age 11. Now, there were two older half-brothers who inherited all the good assets. They got most of the land. Uh, the eldest, Lawrence, who I'll talk about at more length, uh, got what he renamed as Mount Vernon. And the second brother, uh, Austin, uh, got the Pope's Creek property, which we looked at. Um, George inherited Ferry Farm, which was just 600 acres uh, and 11 slaves, but he was 11 years old. So his mother took them over and managed them, which was only fair because she got worse assets. 
Um, this was an era when primogeniture was the rule and the eldest son got most of the good stuff and the widows got not much. Uh, and she had to support and raise her five children uh, between the ages of five and 11 uh, on what she had, um, which presents those, pro well, first I should mention, Washington actually never got this land out of his mother's control until he was past 40. Um, she just hung on to it. And that does bring us to the problem of Mary Washington, his mother. Uh, for the first century or so after Washington's life, she was held up as the Madonna of the American founding and the, the mother of Washington and uh, in, in immaculate in every respect. Uh, and then in the 20th century, historians turned on her. They decided she was a nasty woman. Um, they referred to her as a termagant and a harridan. Um, and I felt very much that in working on the book that this was terribly unfair. Uh, the truth is, as Washington said himself, that whatever he became in life was because of her. She was the most important uh, parent in his childhood. She was the one who was around, certainly after his father's death, but even before. Uh, she was able to raise these five children, all of whom uh, on her own, all of whom turned out well, and one spectacularly so. Um, she was a pious religious woman, uh, evidently strict. Um, and endlessly anxious about money. You can understand that. Um, that was a difficult uh, period she was in. And she shared those qualities with her eldest. Um, they were both very disciplined people. Uh, he uh, had a lifetime of 12-hour days, um, and I think he was trained to do that by his mother. Uh, and he was always anxious about money. And I think he was trained to do that by his mother. Um, it, but I do concur with Mary Washington's recent biographer, Martha Saxton, that Martha has been unfairly treated. Uh, now, he did benefit greatly, however, from a surrogate father. Uh, and that is uh, his eldest half-brother, Lawrence, and this is an image of his, uh, a painting of him that was done. And if you've been through Mount Vernon, you should have noticed that in the, his library or his plantation office, however you want to call it, uh, where he spent much of his day, uh, the, this painting was on the wall throughout Washington's adult, adult life, that uh, Lawrence was that important a figure to him. Uh, he was 14 years older than George, so he's 25 when uh, their father dies. Uh, he has been educated in England, uh, well-educated, uh, and he takes George on as his special charge, sponsors him and instructs him in the ways of the world. By all indications, Lawrence was a talented young man. Uh, he had the polish of his English education, uh, he was the master of Mount Vernon. He had the best land. Uh, and he swiftly vaulted into the upper reaches of Virginia society. The most important thing he did, um, and this is a, an action he modeled for his younger brother, was to marry a rich woman. Um, and he married Anne Fairfax, the daughter of Colonel William Fairfax, who managed the Fairfax lands in Virginia's northern neck. Uh, the Fairfaxes were the most prominent, richest family in Virginia. Their lands were the equivalent of the size of the state of New Hampshire. Um, their uh, estate, which was next to Mount Vernon, Belvoir, was a, was a show place. Uh, and Colonel William Fairfax, who was Anne Fairfax's mother, managed the family lands. And he took Lawrence on as uh, a mentor. Uh, and then after Lawrence's death, he took on George. Now, I'm sort of embarrassed that this is the only image I could find of Colonel Fairfax. Um, 
it looks either like little Lord Fauntleroy or else a female. Um, and it's hard to take him seriously. So I try to uh, skip over that. Um, but Lawrence tragically contracted tuberculosis and he dies at age 34. Uh, the Washington men tended to be large, hale and hearty and die young. Uh, it was a very sad development for George. He was uh, obviously bereft. This was a second father figure to die. Uh, he was 20 when it happened, um, but it opened the way for him. So he became the alpha male of the Washington clan and he became the beneficiary of Fairfax sponsorship. Now, George went to work when he was 17 uh, and he did so not because he was eager to work necessarily, but because he needed the money. Uh, he taught himself the surveying trade. His first surveying job was, <clears throat> was Lawrence's turnip field. And he mostly surveyed Fairfax lands for the first year or so of his career. Uh, and it's important to remember just how important that family was to his uh, success and sponsorship in these early years. Uh, the Fairfax lands he surveyed were out in the western part of the colony around Winchester, the Shenandoah Valley. And that became a real focus for George's early years. And that frontier experience in Fairfax support won him a, a mission just shortly after his brother's death to carry a vital message to French military forces that were filtering into Western Virginia uh, in, a, in a very aggressive way. Uh, this was the opening chapter of a clash of empires between the French and the English. It was gonna happen all across the globe. And it just so happened that the first place they really met up was in America's then West. Uh, the French wanted to, they, they controlled what we think of as Canada now, and they wanted to control the Ohio River so they could link up that colony with New Orleans and their lands down there. Uh, so that made it important to expand south and to seize this other land, which the British also claimed. Uh, Washington's mission was successful. Uh, he survived it. It was done in the winter, which was very treacherous. Uh, he had to deal with hostile Indians and deceitful Frenchmen uh, and raging rivers and, with, and, and, and freezing temperatures. Uh, he wrote it all up in a report which was published in newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, it's actually everything that James Fenimore Cooper tried to put into his books, but uh, Washington's was much shorter, so easier to read, and uh, it made him a star. Uh, he was at age 21, known, and as we all know, that's that's an important first step to becoming a politician is to be known. Uh, it looked like he was destined for great things from that, but it slowly began to turn sour. He was given a command of uh, Virginia forces. Uh, he was only 23 by then uh, to deal with, uh, oppose the French out in the wilderness, what was then the wilderness. Uh, and he was not ready for that responsibility. He had no military training. He, uh, he read books to the extent he could. Uh, he had uh, a deeply unsuccessful uh, conflict with the French at this location. Uh, which is Fort Necessity. It's in southwestern Pennsylvania. You can visit it now, and they've rebuilt it to look like this. And essentially no one, no military historian, no passing uh, uh, wildlife looks at this and doesn't say to himself, what was he thinking? Um, which was exactly what his Indian allies said right before the battle. They all left because they thought this was such a terrible idea. He had built this stockade in the middle of a meadow with surrounded by woods, um, which sad to say were within musket distance of 
the stockade. So the French and their Indian allies, and the, it was really the Indians who usually did most of the fighting, um, just hid in the woods and, and, and shot the heck out of the uh, Virginians for a full day. Um, about a third of the men were either killed, uh, of Washington's men were either killed or wounded. It started raining. Uh, his men broke into the rum and, and got drunk. It seemed like the, the best of a lot of bad alternatives. Um, and so he ended up having to uh, surrender. Uh, he signed a surrender document that was quite controversial because it seemed to admit that he had been in the wrong and had actually assassinated a French officer previously a, who claimed to be a diplomat. Uh, and it was pretty much a catastrophe, um, both for the people with him, uh, but also for his reputation. He then signed on to the, the, a British expedition the following year uh, with General James Braddock. He was an aide to Braddock. He had no actual command responsibility. Uh, and they marched out to the west to uh, seize control of what was called the Forks of the Ohio then. It's now Pittsburgh. It's where the Allegheny and the Monongahela rivers form, uh, joined together to form the Ohio River. And it was the strategic spot. It was the place everybody wanted to control. Uh, and uh, that proved to be a catastrophe of even greater dimensions. This one was not Washington's fault. Um, it was Braddock's. Uh, it was the worst defeat of British arms for several centuries. Uh, they did suffer more than half casualties. It was pretty much in the neighborhood of two thirds. And it went on for three hours because the troops simply would not respond to the officers. There was a terror of fighting Indians uh, among the British and the Virginians. Um, which seized them. Uh, and ironically, Washington comes out of this battle with his reputation somewhat restored. He was the tallest man in the fight, which he always was. Uh, he was mounted on a horse, which made him even more conspicuous. He's riding back and forth with orders to different people from the uh, commanding general. Four bullets passed through his clothes. A horse is shot out from under him, but he doesn't have a scratch. And he's the fellow who hauls General Braddock's dying body off the battlefield. Um, he was as heroic as you can be in a catastrophe. Uh, and it made a real impression on other uh, American colonists at the time. He was then, uh, there's a thing we, popular notion many years ago, it was called the Peter Principle, that you're promoted to the job you're not able to perform. And the Peter Principle applied here. Um, he was given command of the Virginia Regiment then to fight against the French and the Indians out West. And he was not up to that job. Um, and I don't say that in a sneering way. He was still a very young man. He was 25, but he also had a terrible, impossible job. Uh, the Indians were brilliant at fighting in the woods. Uh, Virginians were not. Uh, one of his contemporaries described uh, sending Virginians out after Indians as the equivalent of asking a cow to catch a hare. Um, they were just noisy and in inept uh, and just would inevitably get ambushed. Uh, and for about three years, Washington had to deal with uh, his soldiers and the settlers uh, facing uh, massacres, ambushes, uh, raids. Uh, there was essentially no success that the colonial forces had. Uh, and he took it terribly hard. Uh, he felt useless. Um, he was frustrated beyond words. And he began to strike out. And this is where he really went off the tracks. Uh, he started writing these really unpleasant letters to his superiors, um, both uh, within the military structure, the British uh, military structure, but also the uh, royal governor of Virginia who had actually given him the job. Uh, 
So that sort of the biting the hand that fed him. And he uh, was sarcastic, uh, bumptious, disrespectful, and he made enemies. Uh, and he then, and, and I don't mean to be unsympathetic. He was a man who had all the responsibility and no power to meet the needs. Uh, he just was, uh, the Virginians were overmatched. In late 1757, after nearly three years of this uh, grinding experience, uh, he fell deadly ill with dysentery and a doctor told him that if he didn't go recuperate somewhere, he was gonna die. Uh, so he left his post without permission and he rode home to Mount Vernon. Uh, he had by that time rented Mount Vernon from Lawrence's widow. And within a couple of years, he would actually inherit the property. Uh, three people had to die in order for him to get it. Lawrence and then Lawrence's widow and then Lawrence's daughter. Um, but that happened. It's luck of a sort. Uh, and at this point, he did uh, control Mount Vernon. So that's where he uh, holed up basically for four months. And I think of this as sort of the, the lowest point in his life when he really just felt physically miserable. If you've had anything like dysentery, you know what that can be like, except with dysentery, it goes on for months. Uh, and he knew that professionally he was getting nowhere. And there is, this is a time I think he takes stock. Now he's not a confessional sort. He doesn't write letters like that. So I'm interpreting his actions. I wanna be clear about that. But by the early spring, he's recovered his health and he's got his energy back and he starts on a whole new track. It's clear he has decided not to be a soldier, not to be a military figure. Uh, he has decided to uh, uh, marry Martha Custis. Uh, he must have met her somehow or known of her. We have no record of that. But in March of 1758, he visits her twice, twice at her home. She has married a very rich man who died. So she now owns, uh, she's the wealthiest widow in the colony. She is much in demand, you would expect. She's a young woman still. She's uh, like Washington, about 26 years old. And in two weekend visits, he wins her and they are engaged. That's good work. Um, and they do get married then uh, when he leaves the uh, army uh, about eight months later. Having won that engagement, he returns to his duty and is part of this final drive that does finally take uh, uh, the Forks of the Ohio, what is then Fort Duquesne, becomes Fort Pitt, and then Pittsburgh. I do want to uh, show this image of Martha. This is unfortunately from uh, 1772, so it's 14 years later. So it, it's hard to know. They were a very uh, superficially ill-matched couple. Um, he was six foot two, slender. I always try to emphasize that because sometimes he's portrayed in images as a bit portly. He was straight as a string uh, throughout his life, powerful, but never heavy. Um, she was under five feet tall and round um, by, by all accounts and, and hers too, her, her account as well. Um, yet they seem to have been quite well matched. They were devoted and together for some 40 years. Uh, we are hamstrung because they followed the convention of the time of destroying each other's letters um, before they died. Uh, and I went through that on my Madison book, which is uh, James and Dolly Madison did the same thing. Um, and you just want to, you know, scream at them, please don't do that. <laughs> we won't look for 50 years, but you know, then we want to look. 
Um, it's clear, though, when he returns to duty that he is only in this for a short term. He is, interestingly, just as difficult to live with for the uh, British power structure. Uh, and he will be turning in just a few months to building his new life as the master of Mount Vernon and as a political figure. And in this summer of 1758, he runs for office. He stands as a candidate, excuse me, for the House of Burgesses, which is the legislative body of the colony. And he stands, <coughs> pardon me, he stands for election in Frederick County, which was then, then included Winchester, uh, which is the largest town out in, that, in, the, in the Shenandoah. Although he did not really live there, uh, you could run under the rules then wherever you owned some land, and he did own a bit of land out there that he had acquired when, when he was uh, uh, surveying. And, and he won the seat easily. So when he finally leaves uh, the military service, which he does within two weeks after the fall of Fort Duquesne, the seizing of the uh, uh, forts of the Ohio, uh, he is on his way to marry Martha and his new life. Now, the House of Burgesses was a huge challenge for him. Uh, this, of course, is the uh, 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 colonial capital in Williamsburg. Uh, it was filled with very savvy political people, uh, rich, well-educated planters and their lawyers, by and large. You always find the lawyers there. Um, and it was a cradle of statesmen, uh, people who would be important to the future of the colony than the state, like Richard Henry Lee uh, and Patrick Henry. Uh, Washington was a raw talent. He was had this limited education. He was never adept at de debate. His whole life he avoided debate. He watched and he listened and he learned. And he has an early episode that I found very uh, telling, uh, which I'm going to describe to you with this uh, more modern illustration. Uh, that's not Washington and the pigs. Um, but in the town of Winchester, which was the central town in his uh, constituency, uh, they had no limitation on pigs. So they could run through the town freely. And if you've ever been around pigs, and I haven't spent much about around them, but a bit, uh, they uh, are strong and they're smart and they will get into anything they can get into. Uh, and that includes gardens. That includes wherever you've stored food, wherever you have something that could be trampled. Uh, and they also like any animal, will relieve themselves wherever they happen to be. And so if you have pigs running free in the town, it's not a very nice town. So people in Winchester wanted to get a rule that you had to pen your pigs. It was called the Winchester Pig Running Bill. Uh, Washington brings the bill to the floor. He's one of the two uh, Burgesses from Frederick County. And he can't get it adopted, it fails. Now, this is puzzling, and there's no explanation in the records uh, for this. You know, it's hard to imagine that the pigs had a lobby. Um, but the, the bill is then turned over uh, to this fellow, uh, Edmund Pendleton. This is a later image of him as an older man. But Pendleton was probably the best lawyer in the House of Burgesses at the time and a very clever fellow, and he repackaged the bill. It was no longer the pig running bill. He made it an environmental bill. And he announced it, and it was called um, a measure to preserve the well water of Winchester, because of course, whatever the pigs uh, left on the ground would percolate into the wells and, and make them unpleasant. So penning them up would preserve the well water and save our environment, and thus repackaged 
the bill sailed through the uh, legislature and became law. This was a pretty good lesson in practical politics, in political persuasion, and in marketing, um, all of which are part of politics. And over the next years in the House of Burgesses, Washington rose steadily. He starts out working principally on military matters, but those he, he expands his scope. He gets into financial issues. He wins the confidence of his colleagues. And he figured out what his political assets really were, and he learned how to emphasize them and develop them. I would submit to you that there were really two that were most important. The first was his power to inspire trust. It's a term I think we, we might sometimes today call charisma. Um, being tall and a former soldier and the master of Mount Vernon helped him with that, that built his, his public image. But he was also judicious and courteous and affable. I was quite struck that a number of his contemporaries referred to him as affable, which is not how we think of him. It's not how he looks on the dollar bill. Uh, and he had all those skills that political consultants preach. He listened to people. He mostly listened. He didn't speak that much. He made them feel like they were the only person in the room. He connected with them. And he did make this point in several letters of advice to younger relatives that he never spoke on a subject unless he was sure what his views were on them. And that's, that's pretty good advice. The second quality I would emphasize was his ability to get things done. Uh, again, I trace that a bit back to his mother. Um, and it is a skill that when we, we are out in the world, we find in surprisingly short supply. There are a lot of very smart people who often can't get much done. And Washington impressed his colleagues in the House of Burgesses and everybody he dealt with in his life as someone who got things done. Uh, there's an episode where he gets legislation adopted by two uh, states uh, in the 1780s uh, to uh, revamp the uh, waterway on the Potomac. And Madison writes a letter to Jefferson afterwards saying the man's ability to uh, get things accomplished is astonishing because he did it all in about three weeks. And this is pre-internet. This is pre-telephones. He had to like ride on horseback from one place to the other and then confront people personally and get it all done. Uh, at the same time that he was advancing in the House of Burgesses, he also was learning about local government. For 13 years, he served on the vestry of his uh, Anglican church, uh, this is the old poet church in Alexandria. Uh, because the Anglican church was a state religion, it had public responsibilities, including making, uh, supporting the poor and managing boundary disputes between uh, landholders. Uh, for six years, he served as a justice of the Fairfax County Court. He was not a lawyer, but he did sit on panels that presided over hundreds of civil and criminal cases, knowing, learning what people's conflicts were over, how they behaved for good or ill. Uh, but it's, it's often lost that the court was a key organ of local government. Uh, it in, implemented economic regulations for export products, uh, particularly for a tobacco grading and warehousing system that was used to market the product to the rest of the world and eight other pro uh, export products. The county court collected taxes, licensed tavern keepers, supervised the building of local roads and bridges, approved ferry, ser ferry service in the building of mills, and it appointed all the other local officials. Washington, through this exposure, through the House of Burgesses, the Vestry, and the County Court, he is getting a graduate course in public administration and local politics. Now, his real move into political leadership in Virginia comes with a growing conflict between the colonists and Britain. It, it grew out of the French and Indian War. The British wanted the Americans to pay a share of the costs 
Americans paid lower taxes at the time than Brit British people did. The Americans resisted. The position that was taken was, we will pay more taxes. That would be fair, but we will decide what taxes and when. You people on the other side of the Atlantic shouldn't do that for us. Only people who represent us should have that power. Uh, and the conflict came in three waves. There is first the Stamp Act of 1765. Washington sort of sits that one out, so I'm going to skip over it. Then comes the Townshend Acts of 1767, which imposes a round of new taxes. The Stamp Act was largely uh, rescinded. And a voluntary association movement was begun, and its goal was to boycott imports from Britain, including the import of slaves. Washington seized leadership of that uh, movement in Virginia. He worked with a neighbor of his, another neighbor, uh, George Mason, uh, lived at Gunston Hall, and they developed an association structure, uh, resolution, uh, Mason hated to leave home, so Washington carried it by himself to the House of Burgesses as a proposal for a network of local committees that would enforce this uh, system. It was adopted unanimously by 88 Burgesses. And one measure of how Washington is elevating himself is Virginia at the time would list the signatories to a public uh, action by their significance, by you know, the Speaker of the House would be first and then the next most important person and then the next most important person. Washington now of the 88 people is listed seventh. So he's rising. Uh, at 37, he is known as a man who's willing to challenge the British directly and he's become a man of weight in Virginia's political world. British effort came in response to American resistance that included the Boston Tea Party, in late 1773, those, what were called the Intolerable Acts, were largely directed at Boston and Massachusetts, but the rest of the colonies um, uh, very much uh, joined in the resistance. And by 1774, Washington is the leading figure in Fairfax County. He's the leading legislator, judge, vestryman, former military leader, and determined opponent of the British. As the resistance evolves, he chairs a committee in the county to consider what course to take. He presides over repeated public meetings. He and Mason draw up 24 resolutions that have entered history called the Fairfax Resolves, which involved a stunning denial of British power, uh, called for union among the colonies, and again, a re reinforced import boycott and pledged resistance with every means which heaven hath given us. That meant war. This was a powerful statement that reverberated around the colonies and it appeared in all the newspapers and at the top it said, G. Washington presiding. And Mason's name didn't appear. Uh, it's never, it, it's always good to have your name on things. Um, a few months later, when Virginia chose delegates for the Second Continent, for the First Continental Congress, excuse me, a few months later, uh, Washington finishes third in the balloting. Then a few months after that, they chose delegates for the Second Continental Congress, and Washington finishes second behind only the Speaker of the House, Peyton Randolph. Now, at both of the Continental Congresses, and here is... Um, an image of Washington before them. And it's kind of a misleading image because that's one of the things he would do uh, least, which was to stand in front of everybody and talk. In fact, uh, what he mostly did was talk uh, off the floor uh, to the other delegates about military matters, which he knew something about. Uh, we had very shallow talent pool in America of military people. Uh, and he used the same methods to win his colleagues' trust that he had in the House of Burgesses. No fiery speeches, but determination, calm dignity, and disciplined commitment, along with affability and the ability to connect at a personal level. His colleagues were effusive in his praise in their letters home, uh, and one of the things that struck me is 
and, and this image does capture it, he tended to wear his uniform at the Second Continental Congress, his militia uniform, and he's the only guy there wearing a uniform. And it seems sort of odd from my perspective. It's like the guy who shows up at your party with a guitar and wants to like play a song or two. Um, but nobody writes home and says there's this strange guy from Virginia who, you know, is running around town in a uniform. They, I think he gauged correctly that it would be seen as an act of patriotism and as designed to reassure people that he was willing to take responsibility uh, in the military field. Uh, he was elected commander in chief unanimously and his journey to take command of the Continental Army before Boston uh, was almost like a royal pro progress. He was acclaimed and cheered all the way along the, the way. Um, and I do think it's, uh, this is a painting that was done of him in a different uniform, but still one of his uniforms from the militia in 1772. So it's about the, the right time. Uh, he instantly became the most important leader of the revolutionary movement, and he retained that position until his death, using the skills that he had mastered in this lengthy political apprenticeship that I have just given you a glimpse of. But let me finish with a passage from the book that tries to describe that moment in 1775 when he became commander in chief. To steer this audacious American movement past the dangers of mob rule at one extreme and strongman rule at the other, would require astonishing luck, unrivaled fortitude and vision, and unusual political acumen that produced steady, measured judgments. Washington's public career would become an excruciating balancing act, translating the passion and idealism of rebellion into a military victory, and then a working government that still respected the rev revolution's ideals. Revolutions are combustible things. They rarely lead to the destination proclaimed at their outset. Few people in history had or ever would have the opportunity that Washington held in his hands. Fewer still could take advantage of that opportunity with such mastery. He had done one thing more. He had captured the Holy Grail for public actors, operating as a politician with extraordinary success, while at the same time not seeming to be one at all with all the negative baggage that the label has always carried. He was seen and ever would be seen as a farmer, a soldier, a patriot. After 16 years as a legislator, six years in a point of office as judge and city trustee, and after sponsoring key political moves like the Association of 1769 and the Fairfax Resolves, almost no one thought of him as a political operator, nor would they in the future. It was magic. Thank you. I'd love to respond to any questions you may have, and there are people with microphones. So if you have a question, uh, wait for the mic, please. Is there a uh, death mask at Mount Vernon? How do you have that picture of how he will look today? That was based on what? Uh, there is a death mask at Mount Vernon, uh, or, or at least I think it's a life mask, actually, uh, that was done. But the fellow who created that didn't use it. <laughs> he uh, decided he did use an image of, of Washington, and he used... Uh, Images of other people, and it's sort of embarrassing to say who they were. I think one was Michael Douglas, um, the actor. Uh, and there was actually a woman's face that he used as well. Uh, and I'm no judge of how good it was, but it strikes me as pretty good. He got the coloring right. Washington was very, uh, had a ruddy, florid uh, coloring. He uh, was very sensitive to the sun. He, he would ride Mount Vernon uh, on sunny days with an umbrella to protect his face from the sun. Did the fact that he didn't have children um, affect the way people viewed him in terms of not creating a dynasty? 
Uh, very much when it came time to be president. Uh, you know, the only, this is an era when, a, you know, elective presidents don't exist anywhere. And so all most people know are, are popes and kings and emperors. And uh, there was a lot of mistrust that there, was a, there were schemes to, you know, reinstate monarchy. Uh, Jefferson fanned those flames very uh, aggressively, uh, called his opponents monocrats. Uh, and uh, Washington, for two reasons, I think, was able to avoid that. One is, in fact, he had no children. But the other was he had resigned power uh, conspicuously in his life. When, when he was commander-in-chief and they, we beat the British, he could have hung around. <clears throat> he could have stayed in control of the army. <clears throat> we know from history, from Julius Caesar, from Napoleon, from Oliver Cromwell, the guy who controls the army controls things. Um, Washington resigns and goes home. And I think that was a powerful act that won the trust of many, many people. And then, of course, after two terms in, as president, he goes home. He doesn't want to be president for life. Uh, it was a great example to set for the nation. Um, I think it was actually his personal feeling both times. He really didn't want to do those jobs anymore. Um, but it, it was certainly part of his political success and part of that earning people's trust that was always uh, uppermost. He had a, he was on unmistakable. He, he said it different ways, but he, he always said the most important thing to me is my reputation, what people think of me. And I, to be blunt, I don't think he meant the person on the street. He meant what did educated people think of him and was he well regarded and respected. And he thought in order to be well regarded and respected, uh, he needed not to be power mad. And so that's how he was. Getting back to the uh, question of his not having any children of his own, um, I've had the impression, and it could be wrong, that he was a true father figure to Martha's children. Is that accurate? <laughs> More to his, his, uh, Martha's grandchildren. Uh, his, uh, Martha's children, uh, the, she had a boy and a girl who had survived uh, and the girl dies at 15 and we don't really have much of a picture into their relationship because she dies so young uh, and I just can't say much. Uh, and she'd been ill. She had uh, epilepsy uh, much of her young life. Um, and his relations with Martha's son were very strained. Um, uh, Jack Custis, uh, was a very rich young man and was not in Washington's view, a serious person. Um, he didn't study, he didn't want to do anything except go hunting and, and, and ride horses and, uh, and gamble. And he got married, I think, well, he announced that he wanted to get married when he was 16. Uh, one of his tutors referred to him as, uh, uh, oh, I'm not gonna get the word right, but essentially as, uh, the equivalent of an, of an oriental sensualist. Um, and Washington was hopelessly frustrated by that. He thought people should be hardworking, should get out there and do stuff. And Jack Custis was never going to do that. And he didn't. Um, he didn't need to. Uh, but his children, he had three girls and a boy. Uh, Washington did have a close relationship with. He writes them warm letters. Uh, and uh, letters of advice. He was always brimming over with advice, uh, but it seems that they they actually asked for it on occasion. So that's, uh, if you've got children, you know that that doesn't always happen. Um, so I, I, I think that was the more rewarding uh, relationships and those were the more rewarding nurturing relationships in his life. And of course he, he sponsored many young men uh, uh, principally in the army, uh, men like Lafayette, uh, 
John Lawrence, uh, Hamilton. So he, he built those relationships as well. Well, if I've answered all of your questions, <laughs> uh, thank you very much, and I'll be available to sign books. <laughs>